If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from Mark 8, 1 through 9. I'll read it for us here as the screens figure out what they're doing. There they go. Technology sometimes in buildings, you know. In those days, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied, and they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them. Please be seated. The rise of the internet came with a whole lot of promises. Promises that really have the root way before the start of the internet, the rise of the internet, to the start of the 20th century, and they were to come to full fruition in and through the glorious World Wide Web. It came with the rise of globalization. From all around this glorious planet, the world that God had made, technology had advanced to an extent where we could have information and connections that literally spanned the oceans. Our supply chains started operating through these connections, and then with the internet, so did our information and our relationships. Social media, emails, movies, shows, lights, sounds, all trying to keep people happy, connected, stimulated. And what was once sold as a way to keep us connected has morphed more into a competition for eyeballs and attention. In fact, it's been known now as the attention economy. It's become more lucrative to try and make people feel connected rather than to actually connect people. Algorithms and AI has been developed to keep us engaged and thus enraged and made our neighbors our enemies. At the same time, we are actually, generally speaking, much less connected than ever before. We are more lonely, less happy, less engaged, less meaningfully active in our actual communities than ever before. People feel isolated, misunderstood, and in many ways abandoned. Some of this is justified, some of it's not. But it does highlight our spiritual condition as well. When you consider God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoying a community of love for all eternity... And humanity was designed to enjoy that community of love and extend it to the rest of the world. But through sin and the fall, we lost it. We were separated. And we've been going through going to broken and poisoned wells ever since to try and compensate for our deep desire and thirst. And instead of welcoming people into relationship and kingdom of God throughout history since the Tower of Babel, we've been much more interested in making kingdoms in our own name, in our own image, which is usually at the expense of others. Making one great thing at the expense of others, exploitation, manipulation, idolatry, and pride. God hates pride, and the just punishment for our sin and fallenness is death and separation from God. Good morning. Welcome to the Seed Community Church. <laughs> Glad you joined us. Friends, in so many ways, we live life as spiritual vagabonds, as just pilgrims, relational islands. Jesus came to restore us into true relationship, not just a true relationship, the 
true relationship. I think of the prayer Jesus prayed in the garden for all believers, John 17, 20 through 23. Let me read this for us. John 17, 20 through 23. I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Have you considered just how generous our God is in just that statement? How hospitable he is? I mean, many in our culture and our world would like to, to paint and describe God as an evil, angry old man on the clouds with a magnifying glass ready to smite us. But when we read the scriptures, when we read Jesus' word, we read that that is so far from the truth. So far from the truth. From the beginning, God is more generous and hospitable and kind and long-suffering than we could ever imagine. And his desire is what's best for us and for the world. And he knows that ultimately that is only attained through true and proper relationship with him, caught up in the love of the Trinity. And that ability, that ability to enjoy that love has been won for us through Jesus Christ. We've just got to marvel at the outrageous generous, extravagant, scandalous love of God. As we continue our study through practicing the faith, that's how we started this year, we turn today to the practices of generosity and hospitality. Generosity and hospitality have been hallmarks of Christianity since its inception, largely because they're characteristic of Jesus. And therefore, the more we grow into him, the more we'll find ourselves hospitable and generous. They'll just overflow our hearts. And, and friends, if I can be honest, this is a fun practice. This is a fun one. It's the practice about radical love and parties and celebrations and meals and gifts. And, and yet it seems to be something that we've lost and we need to dust off a bit. There's something special about the love of God expressed through his people. I know I've been affected by it originally uh, through the generosity of my parents, uh, who, who just gave more love and more love and more understanding and more forgiveness than I ever deserved. I mean, from a young age, I learned uh, through the example of the scandalous love of the Father God, I learned about that because of my dad and his forgiveness, just because he was so loving. They wanted us to be at home with them, wanted to provide what we needed and then some. Why? Because my mom and dad loved us kids. Beyond just my family, I've known so many believers who are just the most generous and hospitable people from this congregation and in others. I can personally testify that God has used your generosity to answer prayers in my own life. And while churches can, and let's be honest, have blown it through the years, they have. Compassion, hospitality, and generosity are woven into the Christian ethic and has been since the church we read about in Acts. Christians, when you look historically, pioneered hospitals and hostels and hotels and orphanages and schools from the first century onward. It all goes back to the church. Hospitality and generosity have flowed from the heart of God into his people and from them to the world. Maybe you know the story of, of a woman uh, named Rosaria Butterfield. She was an atheistic academic lesbian who was pursuing higher education. Uh, she was very antagonistic and, uh, we'll just say, angry towards Christians in the church. While she was doing some studying, and a local pastor invited her over for dinner, and they became friends. And over time, through the course of love and hospitality, 
was introduced to Jesus, repented and is a new creation, and is now a prominent Christian thinker and apologist. She wrote a book detailing some of her story. I'd recommend it. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her thesis is that title, The Gospel Comes with the House Key. We're a new creation, and if we are in Christ, we have the aroma of Christ. That's how the Apostle Paul says it, meaning when people are around us and we're in Christ, there's just something about us. There's a smell about us. And the best, one of the best things we can do is just welcome people into our lives, homes, families, and friendships. Because if, if you haven't noticed, people are hungry for community. They're hungry for it, for love, for true connection. And Jesus was there ready to satisfy it. I mean, think about the scripture we read this morning. Let's, let me read it again, Mark 8, 1 through 4. In those days, there was again a large crowd. They had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. And his disciple answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread in this desolate place to feed these people? I love how great Jesus is portrayed here. There's crowds, we read later, thousands of people. Some scholars say that 4,000 is probably only the men, so you could probably multiply that by three, potentially up to 12,000 people. Massive, right? And, and, and the crowds start coming because they're so compelled by him, his authority, his, his person, his teaching. And so they'd follow him from a long distance to listen to him, to receive healing from him. They were desperate for him. And he notices all these people, they've come such a long way and they don't have any food. And so he tells his disciples, hey, my heart's breaking for these people. He has compassion. May we never cease to marvel at that phrase. Jesus had compassion on them. The compassionate gaze of Christ. His compassion motivated him to generosity. And he mobilizes his disciples to feed the crowd. And they're a bit incredulous. And I would be too. Hey, there's thousands of people, Jesus. We've got seven loaves. What do you want us to do? Uh, we're, we're nowhere near Costco. <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to find enough food to feed all these people? Mark 8, 5 through 9. How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he dismissed them. What a fabulous story. What a fabulous, famous story. And one that people even outside of the church know. But Jesus takes what little the disciples have, fueled by compassion, gives thanks, and miraculously provides foods for thousands to the extent where there's leftovers. I just, I want to see Peter's face. As Jesus, okay, now carry the leftovers. Just me alone? Well, you said you didn't have enough, Peter. You know, like, just to see what would happen. He doesn't just provide enough. It's not even close. His compassion overwhelms where he provides more than enough. And then some. And Jesus did this time and time again, not just with the feeding of thousands, but just in hospitality, in compassion, in his teachings, in his parables, we think of, this, think of the same thing. Uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you know it. Luke 15, the younger son uh, goes off after wishing his father was dead so that he could get his inheritance, takes his money, runs off to a far-off country, and just squanders all of it. But then he decides he's going to come home and, and he's nervous that his father's going to like smite him. And so he practices this whole speech. But then as he comes home, his father intercepts him. And we read this in Luke 15, through 24. The father told his servants, quick, 
Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. From Jesus' perspective, the heavenly father stands ready to be hospitable and generous and compassionate to all who come to him. And beyond that, beyond just the spiritual blessings and love to those who are in Christ, think about the world and the beauty it contains. Be it broken as it is. Think about it. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the sunset. You don't have to be. But lately with the fog and the sunrises, it's like the whole world turns like pink and purple in the morning. It's absolutely exquisite. You don't have to be a Christian to be moved by music. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the taste of pizza. Whoa. I mean, let's be honest, pizza's amazing. If you think not, I'm sorry, uh, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> it's just a gift to all people. It's common grace, just the nature of God spilling into all of creation. Why? Because God's so good. And it's in that vein in Romans 1, Paul argues that because of all that, people should just know that, that there's a creator because of creation. Jesus just embodied that heart of God on earth. He was generous with his time and love and healings and, and hospitable. It was just part of his life. Jesus would show up to a village and he would heal anyone who came to him. Anyone. What's interesting is that when conversations about hospitality and hosting come up, typically we're quick to come up with excuses. Like, that sounds great to be invited over, but then we're like, hey, so we should do likewise? We bring out the excuses. Some will say, I'm just too busy. I don't have a house big enough to host. Uh, I don't have enough money. Or, or I'm single, so maybe when I get married and have a family, I'll host. Or, or I have roommates. I just want to remind you, Jesus didn't own a home. Didn't own a home. In fact, he had a practice of inviting himself over for dinner. <laughs> In the same way, just like Jesus, no matter where he went, was both a guest and a host, we can do the same thing. We can host people spiritually, even if we're not hosting people in our own home or on our own table. Hospitality is a posture of the heart, honoring the other as someone to esteem and to love. Anybody can do that. Anyone, if they're willing. Some of you know uh, Ariana and I, uh, we pastored two churches. We pastored this church, but we're also planting another Christian Missionary Alliance church in Sioux Falls. It's called Ecclesia, uh, which is the Greek word for church because we're not very creative with names. Uh, it's a house church, and it, it means this. We meet in people's homes, and we do church. It's like small group on steroids. Uh, why we decided to plant a church in a model that was very different and much, much harder it's just harder to reach a self-sustaining pace like that. Why? Well, because there are some people who have been so brutally hurt by the corporate church, but they're so hungry for Jesus. And so inviting people into a living room is an open door. And then through praying and sharing life and eating food and reading scripture, they can experience the salvific love and generous heart of God. That's not rocket science. That's how the church has spread for 2,000 years. We, we can have the best programs and the best teachings and the best worship teams and the best lights that don't flicker. And we can have everything be absolutely perfect on Sunday morning. But if we do not have love, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 13, we're just clanging cymbals. As someone who plays drums, can we just say that that's pretty annoying <laughs> if you just have the cymbals all the time? The flip side is true too, though. Turn it around. We can have the worst service with all of the lighting issues, 
with just mistakes and kids running and screaming and, and a subpar sermon. But when people come in and they feel the love and they're welcomed into community and they're met with hospitality, well, that covers a whole lot of issues. Love and hospitality are just that important, partly because it's, it's worship. When we show love, when we show hospitality, when we're generous, we're worshiping. I think of uh, uh, the passage of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. I want to read this section for you. It's long, but it's beautiful. Uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Let me read this for us. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me. And I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he answered them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a heavy passage. I think of a quote I found, uh, it was anonymous, but it says, he who practices hospitality entertains God himself. The sheep, uh, the righteous, they're marked by those who are hospitable and active in their faith, generous. And when we speak of generosity, first, church, I want to commend you. I want to commend you. I've been here for just about two years, and I have just been blown away by the generosity I've seen. There are so many churches, when we just get to like the nitty-gritty, who just struggle to meet budget. We just haven't come close to that. Like, not, not even close to that. In fact, our spending is usually under and our budget, and our, and our giving is typically over our budget. Praise the Lord! <laughs> this allows us to dream big and to be compassionate. So, so first, I just want to commend you. When it comes to the giving to the church part of generosity, friends, you have done well. Thank you. But beyond just giving to the church, generosity of our time and our resources can literally change communities. And, and more than anything, if I can be honest, it changes our own hearts. I know it has for me. Our culture, the American culture, is exceptionally materialistic. There is just so much money spent by people who want you to spend your money, and advertisers. And they just hijack our brains to make us feel like we need to spend more you need to wear this. You need this new tool. Oh, oh, you've been a farmer for 30 years, but if you had this new billion-dollar machine, you'd have no issues. Your life will be perfect if you just spend this much money. And you can finance it interest-free. <laughs> we love money, and we want an excess of money. When the Lord says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, 
most of us would say, no, Lord, give us this day 10 pantries full of abundance and more so I never have to worry or trust in you. Remember the warning of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Isn't that crazy? We spend, generally speaking as a culture, way more than we should. And on things that are really just about comfort, pleasures, uh, not, not even needs or desires, or things that would do good. And, and the proof is in the stats. I don't know if you've looked at like the financial state of people right now in our culture. It's, if you want to have a bad day, I would encourage you to do it. <laughs> uh, but I heard one study done in 2021, the average household in America has over $10,000 of credit card debt alone. That's the average household in America. In our, in our search for more, we oftentimes will, oftentimes will find ourselves with desperately less. And one of the things that robs us from the joy that we have is when it comes to generosity. When we are that shackled by debt, it can remove from us the, the freedom we feel like we might have to give. And giving and gifting is just so counterculture and so wonderful. So, so if that's you, and I know there might be some in the room that are strapped right now, can I just remind you that giving is not just about money? You are not going to miss out if you don't have money to give. That's fine. Please, that's fine. But time and effort and love and attention and compassion. In fact, I would argue even when we have little to no money, we still have so much more of an abundance to give. And so what I want to say is may we never be stingy with our love. May we never be stingy. Because Jesus says so much about generosity. We should do it in secret. We, we should give to whoever bigs. We should remember the poor will always be among us. And it's all done in a God-like way because, right, he is the author of generosity. So we get to partner with God in generosity. Hospitality and generosity. So what? How do you practice it? You know, I was talking to Ariana. Uh, some of this, I just want to say, like, permission given. Have people over. I don't, I don't have a house. Our church has a coffee shop. <laughs> Meet at the coffee shop. Go, go out to eat. Host people around the table. Go, go out for, it's going to be 60 degrees this week. Go for a walk around the school. Just enjoy. Let your kids play. Welcome them in. And before they get there, just, just pray for them. There was a story that I read. I want to read this because it just, it really hit me. And then we'll get to our conclusion. There's a story from uh, Pastor Paul David Tripp. He's a, an author and does a lot of kind of outside church work. And I just want to share something he wrote on his Facebook. He wrote uh, about the weeks following September 11th. Uh, he had a heart-wrenching conversation with one of the managers of, uh, of a restaurant that was in the World Trade Center. The manager told Paul Tripp, I can't get over the grip that I will never see the 250 people who worked with me as people. They were waiters, chefs, busboys, hosts, event planners, but they weren't people to me. And over the last three weeks, I've gone to funeral after funeral and sat with their moms and dads and husbands and wives and children and heard the stories of their lives. Now they're people to me, but now they're gone. Both the manager and the pastor wept. I cried when I read it. <laughs> it's hard to not feel guilt when we consider how often we do not see people as people. Tripp continued, it's the barista whose job it is 
to create a perfect coffee order. It's the supermarket assistant who is there to speed up my process on the self-checkout timer. It's the waiter who exists to get me my delicious meal without delays or mistakes. Do you see people as people, or are they just functions to assist you in creating a day that is stress-free and enjoyable as possible? I would argue that one of the reasons we struggle to feel hospitable and generous is because we fail to see people as people. C.S. Lewis has written in the past, you have never met a being who will not live for eternity. The question is where they will spend that eternity. We oftentimes can just see people as cogs in the wheel of life, but remember the heart of Jesus. Jesus sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. And then he says, hey, they're like sheep without a shepherd. I've read the news. I've seen the Facebook and the TikToks. Yeah, it looks like there's people wandering without a shepherd. It looks like there's people doing really stupid stuff. And I'm often told that I need to be angry and mad and criticize. Okay, they're wrong. They're wrong. There's so much that's wrong. But does your heart break? We can be hospitable even as a guest at a restaurant. We can be hospitable to a, to a customer or even our enemy In order to be hospitable, in order to be generous, we need to know that every person we see is an image bearer of God. And remember Christ's command, the the golden rules. The golden rule. Hey, do to other people as you want others to do to yourself. Would you love your neighbor to do something nice for you? So do something nice for them. Would you like someone to give you $100? Give someone $100. I think of uh, David Crowder. Uh, I don't know, he's a Christian musician. He was experiencing a bunch of materialistic thoughts in his head. And so he decided, whatever he decided he wanted something, he was going to buy that thing for somebody else and not buy it for himself. That's radical. <laughs> That's radical. But how beautiful is that to start combating the, the heart that we have been formed into by our culture? So the question is, do you want to start transforming your life? Do you want to see hospitality and generosity? I'd say the prayer is, God, help me see the people around me as you see them. That he would give you his eyes to see people as they really are, sheep without a shepherd. That he would give you his heart and that he would pour his generous heart into us so that it will overflow to others. So how do we start practicing hospitality and generosity? Friends, first and foremost, we love because Christ first loved us. It's 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Oh, I'm going to be so hospitable. I'm going to transform the world. Not alone, you're not. Not alone. You can't do this in your own strength. You need to abide in the generous community of love that is the triune God. We need to constantly be loved by God. We need to study scripture. We need to hear the promises of God. We need to recognize when we're not okay. And we need to go over to another believer's house and say, hey, I'm not okay. (laughs) And let them love on you so that you can love on other people. We need to remember that he loved us, chose us in love before the foundation of the world. And in prayer, ask God to show and tell you of his love for you. Are you convinced that God has radically loved you? That is the place to start. Because if he's radically loved you with an everlasting agape love of the Trinity before eternity, for all eternity, then you have some love to give. Out of the excess, be generous. Host regularly. If you have a home, awesome. If you don't, get creative. At coffee time at work, sit around the water cooler and and get creative. Invite friends out to dinner. Offer our whole lives as a a sacrifice on the altar of life. That's our true and proper worship. And I, I know this. I've seen this. The more I do the work of God with God through generosity and hospitality, the closer I feel to him, the more joyful I am. And the testimony of the gospel is amplified by our love. 
friends, may we never be stingy with our love. Never. Would you stand with me as we pray?